Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. This is Perry Marshall, and I am on the line with Brenda Dunn, and Brenda has written several books, but one in particular that has been kind of a reference point for me, and it's called Margins of Reality, the Role of Consciousness in the Physical World. And I've got a very good friend named Howard Jacobson, who used to be, uh, I think he's got a PhD in history from Princeton, and he told me about this very interesting department at Princeton called the Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, which Brenda ran for close to 30 years. And they meticulously documented a whole range of phenomena that people generally consider to be paranormal, from people being able to deflect moving objects by concentrating on them to remote viewing and uh, all kinds of perception, ability to change the behavior of random number generators. And I bought this book, Margins of Reality, and it's my scientific benchmark for grounding the existence of like a whole bunch of quote-unquote weird things that many of us experience and acknowledge, but then other members of society vehemently deny that have any existence. And so Brenda's had her fair share of debates and battles with skeptics and whatnot, but the scholarship is very thorough. And I wanted to, I've been wanting to do this for a long time, is is uh, get Brenda on the line. And Brenda, I would love to hear some of your stories and have you tell people more about what you do and what it means, maybe as importantly. And so welcome, and well, thanks thank for you. having this conversation with me. Oh, I'm delighted to chat with you, Perry. I do need to correct one thing. The lab was actually run by my late colleague, Bob John, who was the co-author of that book. Yes. I was the laboratory manager. Uh, he was dean of the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, when he established that program, and he brought me in to uh, run the day-to-day operations. But he deserves the credit for his courageous efforts to establish this program and to design the experiments. So I was only, uh, you know, the second tier of that program, but I was uh, with it for... 28 years. Uh, it was established in 1979, and we closed the laboratory in 2007. But uh, it was quite an experience. Well, so I've often described this, well, based on what Howard told me, and I might have this a little wrong, so you, maybe you can correct me, but I've told people that the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab was sort of like the red-headed stepchild of Princeton because there were a lot of departments that didn't really want to deal with this sort of thing. They felt that, oh, you know, that's just quackery or that's just, you know, a bunch of nonsense. We don't believe in any of that. But what your colleague Bob John wanted to do was rigorously demonstrate, no, yet you are mistaken this stuff does exist and we can measure it. It just happens to be that we can't explain why it happens, but we can verify that it happens. And what Howie told me was that it was funded through alumni donations and then you guys rigorously carried out scientific protocols. And so despite the objections of other people, you actually got an awful lot done. Is that anywhere close to a correct 
explanation of how this came to be? Um, yeah, that is. Because Bob was an administrative officer, he was dean of the school and he was a tenured professor of aerospace engineering, he was able to do the, uh, you know, establish the program, but it was never uh, endorsed by the university and they just tolerated us. And uh, there were many protests and, you know, there were people in the university who felt that it was an embarrassment. Yep. But we did it anyway because uh, we thought it was an important area to study. Bob established the program after supervising a student independent research project uh, with a student who was an engineering uh, undergraduate uh, wanted to design a random number generator, a microelectronic device, and carry out some experiments based on work that had been reported by a physicist named Helmut Schmidt. Mm. who at the time had been working at the Boeing aircraft company. When this student project produced some positive results, Bob felt that it was an important area to study because of its engineering implications. And one of his colleagues in the aerospace area, James McDonnell, who was the patriarch of the McDonnell Aircraft Company mm. and an alumnus of, of, of Princeton, uh, also felt that it had important engineering applications or implications and had uh, offered to fund it if Bob could set up the program. Oh, okay. Very interesting. So it was primarily an engineering program, not a psychological one. In fact, the university uh, insisted that we could not do any psychological studies. We did not study people we studied machines, uh -huh. and the main question that we were addressing was whether random physical processes were potentially vulnerable to the influence of human intention or human consciousness. Yes. So most of the experiments that we did were based on this, well, a more sophisticated microelectronic random event generator that we uh, created. But we had other devices as well. We had a macroscopic uh, random physical device called a random mechanical cascade, a huge uh, pinball machine, really, that sat on one wall of the laboratory and trickled some 9,000 little marbles through a maze of pegs into a bunch of collecting bins at the bottom in a distribution, in a, a bell-shaped or Gaussian distribution where people would attempt to try to move, you know, the mean of that distribution to the right or to the left. With the random event generator, people, uh, this produced a string of binary digits, ones and zeros, and people would attempt to get more ones or zeros and again try to shift the distribution mean of the output but we had a number of other devices. We had a little robot that rode around the table on, uh, driven by a random event generator, and people would try to get it to move to one side of the table or another. We had a pendulum where people attempted to influence the swing of the pendulum to make it go faster or slower, and so forth. But all of these were really addressing the physical devices rather than the people but And all of the people who participated in these experiments were volunteers. They were not people who claimed to have unusual abilities. They were just people who were interested in the topic and thought it sounded like it would be interesting and kind of fun yeah. to participate. And I'm not quite sure where to start. It was a very complex and a very long-running program. Uh, Brenda, why don't you just go back to the beginning a little further and explain why did Bob John think this was so interesting and, like, what happened to him, or you for that matter, to make you realize that going down this particular rabbit hole might be really fruitful? Well, we realized that very early on that we were looking at something 
that was more profound than just, you know, games that people could play. We were looking at the role of consciousness. You know, when we started the program, consciousness was not even a word that was accepted in mainstream science. Nowadays, of course, it's a hot topic. Yeah. <laughs> but, of course, most of the people who are looking into it are assuming that consciousness is a process that's generated by the physical brain. And the experiments we did indicated that this was not a viable explanation. I should mention that one of the reasons that Bob hired me to work with him was I had been doing some experiments in the Chicago area in a phenomenon called remote viewing, or we called it remote perception. And this was a phenomenon based on some studies that had been done at Stanford Research Institute by a couple of physicists who were asking whether people could describe remote physical locations without any sensory input. I think I may have been the first person to carry out a replication of their work and uh, found that not only were people able to describe uh, locations that were physically distant in space, but also distant in time. They could describe these scenes before they were even selected. The experiments we did in the lab, um, the random number generator or random event generator experiments, also explored the effects of distance and time. And it was quite clear that distance and time did not seem to have any effect on the results. What did seem to have an effect on the results that our participants uh, told us quite frequently was that there was more involved here than just having an intention. They also had to establish a, uh, a connection, a resonance with the devices or with the process, an emotional connection that seemed to be important. Oh, okay, yes. So, you know, there was something going on here. And, of course, this was one of the reasons why Mr. McDonald wanted to explore this, because he had seen experiences where pilots in his planes that were under stress sometimes or in combat were experiencing strange phenomena where their technology would go crazy. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the term they used which I, I'm sort of blocking on, but uh, gremlins, that was what it was, the gremlin effects. Okay. And this was why he became interested in the topic. So it was really a pragmatic question that we were approaching to begin with. And then we realized that this was more than just, you know, a, had more than just pragmatic implications. It had implications for the understanding of human consciousness. What was going on? What was happening? Was it really happening? Could it be repeated? And we carried out many experiments, oh, millions of trials in the human-machine experiments, and we also carried out several hundred trials in remote viewing where our efforts were to attempt to design analytical techniques to evaluate or quantify the information that was acquired in this strange process. Brenda, if I could just clarify, uh, so when you were describing remote perception, you're talking about somebody going somewhere and sending somebody a picture of a train station, let's say, and a person, the other person who's very, very far away and doesn't have any knowledge of what's going on and actually being able to sketch out what the picture that was being sent to them by the other person and you actually describe in your book a rigorous process where you scored the accuracy of that drawing and that you were trying to quantify this to the maximum possible extent. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. And the people were attempting to not only describe this train station or whatever the location was from a distance, but they would describe it before that uh, target, that location, 
was determined precognitively. Mm -hmm. He referred to the program as precognitive remote perception, or PRP. But we were able to develop these procedures, and we were able to quantify the information that was acquired. Uh, sometimes you had almost photographic descriptions, but most of the time it was partial. Uh, it didn't work all the time, but it worked far more frequently than it should have if it was just guessing. And there was no question that something real was going on, that people were getting information that they had no way of knowing. So, yeah, the results of those, oh, 600 and some odd experiments that we conducted had uh, results that were unlikely by chance of, you know, several hundred thousand to one. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the human-machine experiments also were showing very strong no well i shouldn't say strong the effects themselves were very weak they were very small a uh, shift of the output distribution means but we did many many uh, repetitions and these tiny shifts compounded over time and over many repetitions to a highly significant effect that once again could not be explained by just chance and it didn't work every time, but it worked more often than it should. And the results were very clear that something was going on that couldn't be explained by our modern explanations, our physical models or our psychological models. So uh, the third part of our program, of course, was then dealing with the question of what's going on here. Can we develop some kind of a model, some kind of an explanatory description of what might be happening? And I can't say that we actually succeeded in that, but we did come up with a couple of models that helped us to understand a little bit better what might be happening and what the implications of that might be. For example, one of our efforts, uh, which we published in a book called Quirks of the Quantum Mind, we took a look at quantum mechanics, which deals with phenomena that are anomalous by, you know, classical physics explanations. And uh, I didn't really know much about quantum. In fact, to be honest, I didn't know anything about quantum mechanics when I met Bob. But we had a lovely conversation very early on in our relationship where he asked me what I thought was happening. And I described in my own sort of long-winded <laughs> uh, fashion. And he listened, and he turned to me and said, you know, that's very interesting. Do you know about covalent bonds? And I said, no, what is a covalent bond? Mm. He then proceeded to describe how the two atoms, for example, two hydrogen atoms could interact and produce a hydrogen molecule where the characteristics of the molecule were different than those of the two individual atoms. Mm. And I remember saying to him, my God, you guys have the answers, but you have no idea what the question is. I know what the question is, and that really led us into a several years of exploring uh, quantum mechanics as a metaphor. In other words, looking at quantum mechanics not as a description of the physical world per se, but as a description of how our consciousness describes its experience of the physical world. And we came up with the whole system, really, looking at all of the principles of quantum mechanics and looking at their metaphorical implications or uh, similarities to processes of the human mind describing the world. <laughs> I could tell you a funny anecdote. Um, early on when we were doing this, Bob had been teaching a course a graduate level course in quantum mechanics and asked me to sit in on it and at first I said oh god I, you know I can't do that I'm not going to be able to follow the math and all of the technical aspects 
he said, well, don't worry about that. Just listen to the concepts. I think you'll be able to follow it. Yeah. And uh, so I did, and I was sitting in on this class, and one day one of the other students turned to me and said, uh, Faye, aren't you a psychologist? And I said, uh, yes. And he said, well, why are you taking a class in quantum mechanics? <laughs> and I said, quantum mechanics? I thought this was the psychology of subatomic particles. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a fascinating exploration. And as I said, we actually managed to get a paper published in the Foundations of Physics, which is a highly respectable physics uh, journal describing some of these ideas and then a few some years later we created we co-authored this book that in, uh, contained this whole model and it had a you know while we were working on this Bob had said to me that uh, it would be interesting to know what the folks who were creating the quantum mechanical concepts or model or whatever mechanics uh, thought about this, and I went off to the library and uh, took out all of the philosophical writings of these patriarchs, books that I discovered had had not been taken out of the library. They had not been borrowed for years. Nobody was really paying attention to them. But we discovered that virtually all of these physicists you know, Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, Erwin Schrödinger, you know, all of these guys, yes. Wolfgang Pauli, recognized that what they were dealing with related to consciousness. Mm -hmm. And their philosophical writings were fascinating. Their discussions, Heisenberg wrote a couple of books describing some of the conversations that they'd had on this topic. And, you know, it was clear that these guys were not only considering the implications for the human mind, but almost all of them had interest in some of the metaphysical or Eastern philosophies. Niels Bohr, for example, was very interested in Taoism. Mm. In fact, when he was knighted by the king of Denmark and designed a uh, coat of arms, he used the symbol of the yin-yang's um, picture, you know, the circle with the yep. black and white. Right. And he, um, as his motto, he said, opposites are complementary. <laughs> and, oh, Heisenberg was very much into uh, philosophy. He read the Greek philosophers. Schrodinger was into Indian philosophy, the Upanishads and whatnot. Wolfgang Pauli was uh, very interested in the concepts of Kabbalah. In fact, he was a friend and colleague of uh, uh, Carl Jung. Mm. In fact, I think he was even a patient of Jung's. I won't swear to that, but they were close, and they co-authored a book together in which Jung developed this concept of synchronicity and uh, meaningful uh, connections between events. So these guys were... Anyway, the... The second half of our book was just a wonderful collection of their writings on this topic. Um, I also had a very dear friend who's now passed away who had been a countess in Hungary before the Second World War and had an opportunity to meet many of these lights, you know, of the current time and told me that one day she found herself at a dinner sitting next to Max Planck, who, of course, was the discoverer or, des, you know, designer, I don't know what the correct word is, of the quantum. And uh, she turned to him and said, Dr. Planck, now that you have solved the problem of the quantum, uh, what do you see as the next frontier in physics? And Planck replied, my dear lady, clearly the next frontier is the study of consciousness. Mm. Personal mm. communication. <laughs> yes. So their writings were really quite fascinating. It was quite clear that they all believed that uh, consciousness was a, played an important role in the phenomena of the subatomic world. 
And, you know, they talked about the role of observation. They talked about the, the uh, wave-particle duality or complementarity and described how these so-called opposites, like uh, particle and wave, were not opposites at all. They were simply complementary or alternative descriptions of the same phenomenon, which depended on how it was observed. If you were looking for a particle, you saw a phenomena that, you know, were localized in time and space. And if you were looking for a wave, you were seeing phenomena that were characterized by frequencies and amplitudes. But they were insistent that these were not separate phenomena. Mm. They were just two ways of looking at the same thing. Mm. And thereby, you know, a consciousness, which is doing the observing and the describing of their observation, is playing an important role in defining what's going on. So anyway, that was a lot of fun. It's a fascinating book. And uh, when we closed the laboratory... We moved our operations to a, a small nonprofit that we called International Consciousness Research Laboratories, or ICRL. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that ICRL has been doing is publishing books. We have our own ICRL press imprint, and it was really through that that we reissued Margins of Reality, which had gone out of print. Uh, when uh, Harcourt, which was the original publisher, went out of business. Uh, mm. But we had the rights to it, so we reissued that book. We wrote a sequel called a Consciousness and the Source of Reality, the Pair Odyssey. The uh, margins of reality described only really the first eight or nine years of our program. And so the source book really brought it up to date and, you know, included a lot of later results and findings and um, theoretical musings that we had uh, subsequent to that. When I read Margins of Reality, I had two dominant impressions. The first one was that you're describing in exquisite detail all of the protocols you use to make sure that if you had um, repeated, repeated experiments that showed that remote perception really was happening, that it wasn't by chance, and, you know, a lot of this was five nines of statistical confidence, which is a lot, right? So right. the first thought was, this is so boring and tedious, nobody could possibly make it up. <laughs> and I don't say that pejoratively. It was like, you know, it's really rigorous scientific protocol, right? And then the second impression I had was when I got to the end of the book and the last chapter of the book described how the leading lights of science, like Heisenberg and Planck and these guys, they were all much more open to these fringy questions in the bleeding edge of science. They were much more receptive and curious to these aspects than the average scientist. And in fact, they seem to play an important part of their thinking. Is yes. that a fair oh, characterization? Absolutely. I mean, that was fascinating, you know, to discover that. But, you know, contemporary physicists use their equations and their theories, but they never really looked into the philosophy that underlay it. Right. Um, no, the implications are tremendous, but the phenomena themselves don't fit into any of the prevailing models of reality, and so there's a lot of resistance even today to what we found. Yes, we did write the book in rather technical terms. It's not as... Bob used to refer to it as subway reading. <laughs> but, you know, we felt it was important to lay out the technical details and all of the uh, protocol uh, constraints that we followed. Well, that's the best part of it. Like, somebody needed to solidly establish that this stuff actually happens. And what you're really doing is you're inviting 
people to think for themselves. Like, well, if you are lazy, you could believe the popular consensus, or you could listen to the guy that says, oh, don't pay any attention to that, or you could read Wikipedia. But if you want to think and you want to collect data and come to your own conclusion, read our book and see how we did the experiments and see how they turned out and find out about the ones that didn't work and find out about the ones that did and see what the data actually tells you. Like, don't believe me, believe my data. That's what your book is saying, and that's what I appreciated about it. Well, that's what its purpose was. And, you know, it's interesting that the book now, some 30 years, well, it's more than 30 years, 87. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but the book is still selling. It never had any reviews. It never had any promotion, just word of mouth. But it has had an impact. But as I say, the resistance was there from the beginning. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about thinking for yourself. Uh, Scientists today don't want you to think for yourself. They want you to accept their descriptions. And in fact, I had a conversation, I've had a couple of conversations like this, but with one physicist who uh, rather irritatingly said, you know, if what you're saying is true, then everything I've done is wrong. And I said, well, no, it's not wrong, it's just not complete. Yes! And he got very upset, and his face turned red, and his voice got louder, and he said, no, I'd be wrong. Well, wow, that's uh, not true. I mean, I know that's not true. I, mean, I, just, I think there was a fear of being wrong, of being challenged with the uh, the paradigm that they were connected to and invested in. Um, and I think even more importantly, the implications of this work are suggesting that human consciousness can affect the physical world in a small but significant way. And that's very threatening. It implies that people need to take some responsibility for what they do and (laughs) what their intentions are. Yes. And that can be scary to people who are committed to a deterministic paradigm. Well, so I think after all of the work that I've done, I'm completely convinced that a deterministic paradigm will never ever achieve what it is claimed to achieve. I've got in a very old blog post I wrote, it's called Two Kinds of Things in the Infinite Chasm. And I said, so there's there's two categories of things in the world. On one category you have gravity and rocks and chemicals and chemical reactions and uh, physical processes, light energy, matter, all of that kind of stuff, all the stuff that physics is all about. And I'm an electrical engineer, so I'm very, very familiar with all that. And I said, but there's another category of things, language, codes, consciousness, copies, errors, error correction, all of the things that come from information processing. And I said, Nobody knows any way to get from the purely physical world to the world of symbols and codes. Symbols and codes are always a product of conscious behavior. And symbols and codes work top down. You know, physics is bottom up, but but consciousness is top down. And biology actually operates top-down, despite the insistence by many, many people that it's just bottom-up, which, of course, is the subject of your book, Being in Biology. This led me to put together a $5 million technology prize called the Evolution 2.0 Prize, and the question behind the prize is, how do you get from chemicals to code? If you can show us how to get from chemicals to code, we will pay for the patent process We'll patent it, and we'll pay you five million bucks for the patent because this would be technologically valuable. And I have the leading geneticist at Harvard Medical School on my judging panel. I have the leading physiologist at Oxford. It's out there. I've given talks. Uh, I launched the prize at Arizona State University, um, hosted by Paul Davies. This is a very fundamental problem. Now, I've just put together the prize to, like, Dude, get the result, 
and we'll write you the check. But people ask me, so what do you think is really going on here? And what I always say is, well, I think what's really going on here is consciousness is prior to matter, and consciousness controls matter, not the other way around. Like, Brenda, you said a few minutes ago, it really bothers people to think that consciousness controls matter. Well, it doesn't bother them that matter controls consciousness. <laughs> well, why would you be bothered that it goes both directions? Like, I don't see any way you can explain, frankly, everything that makes humans humans or everything that makes biology biology without eventually realizing that there's an intentionality that's driving it all. So right. what are your thoughts about that? I'm so delighted that you're exploring this further. This is, uh, I think you're asking very important questions. We, um, in one of our books, it's in um, Consciousness and the Source of Reality, we propose that there are basically three currencies that science deals in, okay? One of them is mass, the matter, the stones, the rocks, the, you know, uh, whatever. Yes. The other one is energy, mm -hmm. and the third one is information. Now, they've been able to demonstrate, uh, Einstein's uh, theories demonstrated that there's a interchangeable aspect to matter and energy. There are also experiences or experiments or data that indicate that energy uh, and matter uh, are interact. Uh -huh. The interesting part of all this is that information, unlike matter or energy, really has two aspects, okay? Sort of like the wave and particle. There's a complementarity there. Information has an objective component that is, you can quantify uh, let's say a, a piece of music by looking at all the notes and you can, you know, translate that. But that doesn't convey the feeling or the experience of listening to the music, which is very subjective. Yes. And yes. we have to look at the fact that these three currencies are all at some level interchangeable. And therefore, they all have a component of subjectivity as well as objectivity. And science today only really likes to deal with the objectivity because they can quantify it. You know, but there are things in human experience you can't quantify. How do you quantify beauty or love or emotion? But yet you can't deny that these are important qualities of the human experience. Uh, but they are subjective, just as listening to the music is subjective relative to the objective quantification of the notes. Well, that's absolutely right. And In fact, one of the most fundamental problems in information theory is that you can quantify how many ones and zeros you have, how many gigabytes your uh, USB stick holds, and, all, and how many bits your Internet connection will sustain. You can quantify all that, but it is not possible to quantify the meaning of any of it. Bingo. Meaning, is that's the key word. Meaning and, is subjective. Right, and it's contextual. And what this means is that in order to get past this chasm, we actually have to redefine what we mean by science. Now, let me explain what that means. Science is normally understood to be the study of fixed universal laws, right? right. Like, well, gravity is the same everywhere in the universe, and all the same particles are the same, and that's an extremely... Well, we think. <laughs> or so we think. It's been an extremely productive assumption, but... All meaning, all languages, all codes are contextual and they are system dependent and the meaning of one zero 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 one means a million different things depending on context 
and you can't reduce that to an equation. So what I think what that physicist or whoever that guy was that was really threatened arguing with you, what you were, well, the reason he's threatened is you're taking a sledgehammer to his profession from the standpoint of saying, you have made a fundamental assumption about how the universe is, and it's wrong because only half the universe is that way, and there's a whole other half of the universe that we haven't even begun to explore yet. And, well, that is threatening. I mean, you have to admit. Uh, I, not only do I admit it, I've experienced that reaction many times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can give you another curious anecdote that I think describes what something was going on. When we first opened the lab, we were in a what had been a storage area in the basement near the machine shop. It didn't have a number on the door. Or, you know, it was just not a designated location. So we thought we should put up some kind of a sign on the door so people would know where we were. And I had thought at the time that it would be very clever to put up a symbol of a Greek psi, because psi stands for psychology or psyche. It stands for parapsychology, but it also stands for wave function in the Schrodinger equations and all the other physics equations. So I put this psi on the door, and a couple of times people would come and stare at it with this very frightened look on their face and ask us why we had a devil's pitchfork on our door. <laughs> um, I remember the last time that happened, I was going out, and I, as I opened the door, there's this guy standing there. Now, mind you, these are engineers. They use the psi, uh, as a constant, you know, symbol every day in their equations. It should be familiar to them. <laughs> But I opened the door, and there's this guy staring with that look at our door. And I smiled and said, no, it's not a devil's pitchfork. It's a Greek letter. And he said, how did you know what I was thinking? And I smiled at him. I said, well, what kind of lab do you think this is? This guy took off down the hall <laughs> like the devil was after him. It was really, I think, a very revealing episode in terms of what's going on in the consciousness of these people who find this so frightening. Well, we took the side down. We figured, you know, we didn't want to antagonize people. And we put up a poster. You've probably seen it. It's a picture of a spiral galaxy with an arrow that says, you are here. <laughs> yes. And uh, one day I came in and I was walking to the lab and I, there's this, another guy looking at our door and I nodded to him and he looked at me and said, you know, that's not our galaxy. And I went and said to myself, oh my God. <laughs> but I said, thank you very much for pointing that out. I'd hate to have a misleading sign on the door and I took it down. <laughs> And I thought, you know, there's something much more interesting going on in this field than the intellectual objections that people raise. Their, their objections are coming from a deeper place, from some fear, something that is so threatening that they can't even acknowledge it. And I think what you just repeated and what this other guy had said about I'd be wrong really gets to the core of it. We used to have a local uh, school district brought their students there. They, they, this was fourth grade students who were in a gifted and talented uh, class. In fact, the origin of that was interesting, too. I had one of the teachers call to ask if they could bring the students by very apologetically. And they said, you know, these kids are taking their first science class and we thought it would be nice if they could visit a science lab, but we tried several of them, and we were told that they didn't have time to waste with a bunch of little kids. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, I can't think of anything better to do with my time than to talk to little kids. Bring them on. Yeah. And over the next 10 years or so, we probably had some thousand children four-year-olds coming to our lab 
and they were doing their very first experiment, science experiment, in developing some kind of human machine type of, and oh God, they were good. They were so creative and so clever. And I remember one kid who had come up with the idea of he connected a football helmet to a battery. And he was wondering if somebody was exposed to this electromagnetic field would be better at the psychic task. Yes. And I, he explained that he tried, showed them, he tried it on himself to show that there was no danger or, you know, pain or anything. And I remember saying to the kid, you know, I think that's brilliant. What a clever idea. And he said, do you really think it was clever? And I said, I really do. And he says, uh, would you tell my father that because he thinks it's stupid. And I said, well, I can't talk to your father, but you can certainly tell your father that you were talking to a scientist at Princeton University who thought your idea was very clever. Yeah. But this was the sort of thing. I would always tell the kids, uh, or I'd ask them, um, do any of you want to be scientists when you grow up? And there'd always be a bunch of hands. And I'd say, you know, if you want to be a good scientist, you have to learn how to say two very difficult things. You have to learn how to say, I don't know. And the other one is even harder. You have to be able to say, I was wrong. <laughs> and this one kid said, but Mrs. Dunn, I can't even say that to my brother. Oh, wow. But, you know, um, Mary, I have to tell you, when we closed the lab and there was announcements, oh, we got a lot of publicity when we closed the lab that we couldn't get while we were running it. Everybody was, you know, oh, yeah, they're closing the lab. They insisted that the university had shut us down, which they did not. Right. If they could have, they would have years before. Yeah. We closed it because we had done all we could do under that environment Mm-hmm. and the constraints that were laid upon us. Also, Bob had retired from his professorship, and it was time to go. We had, It was just going to be more of the same, and we'd already done what we could. So anyway, I get an email from somebody at who is a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon, and this young woman wrote and said, you know, I heard that the Pear Lab was closing, and I just wanted to write to you. You probably don't remember me, but when I was in the fourth grade, I came to visit your lab with my class, and I was so impressed that that was what made me decide that I wanted to be a scientist. Wow. And, you know, that one kid almost made it all worthwhile. Wow. And, uh, you know, that's where I think it's going. It's the younger generation that uh, gets it, and they're the ones who are asking the right questions. I was chatting with, with a young man just yesterday who also, you know, he had, was familiar with some of our work, and he said it had influenced him to pursue this kind of research on his own. And this is what it's all about, you know. It wasn't even so much doing the experiments or collecting the data, although that that certainly was important. But what was even more important, in my view, was the fact that those experiments and those results had the effect of attracting people to our work who wanted to ask the hard questions. Mm -hmm. There's one kid I remember who said, you know, I'm so tired of having to choose between my head and my heart. I have both. Yeah! And I see this movement happening in, with the next generation, the younger people who have not been brainwashed, shall we say, mm-hmm. into the prevailing paradigm. The kids who are willing to question, who are willing to challenge, and I love them. I really do. <laughs> Well, I do think the toothpaste is out of the tube on a lot of these kinds of things. And I see the dogmas of science dramatically weakening, which we could have a whole conversation about that. But I, uh, let's just wrap it up with a, a last question, which is, you know, I'm sure you're very well aware that Thomas Kuhn talked about paradigm shifts and how, you know, all of a sudden the rules are different. 
Mm-hmm. So at some point, the paradigm will shift. Mm-hmm. And the acceptance of consciousness, uh, questions about information, and all of that, it will it will shift into the mainstream and it will suddenly become acceptable. What do you think will be, uh, let's see, the three biggest outcomes or consequences of accepting what everybody's been resisting? Mm, well, <laughs> pardon me. You know, Max Planck once said you don't change a paradigm by trying to convince people to think differently. You change it by when a new generation grows up uh, that starts out with an open mind. I, he didn't put it quite that way. It's been yeah. paraphrased as science changes funeral by funeral. Yes, it does. But I think the implications, oh gosh, I wouldn't even know where to start. But starting with the largest one, in my view, is I think so much of our current malaise of our society, the anger, the discontent, the suicide, the terrorism, comes from a loss of some spiritual roots. We have been raised to believe in this reductionistic paradigm that just isn't fulfilling some inner need that we as humans have to connect with something bigger than ourselves. And I think that that is probably something that will change because I think people are reaching into this business of consciousness and realizing that they're not talking about brain activity. We're talking about something much, much greater. Consciousness with a big C. Consciousness as the organizing principle of the universe. Mm Mm-hmm. And that has a spiritual aspect to it that I think feeds some of this hunger. So I think that's one of the things that's going to change the paradigm as time goes on. Another one is uh, comes from a conversation I had with Bob, oh, many, many years ago, in which I said, you know, You and I recognize that the bottom line of all of this is what we call in scientese resonance. But what we're really talking about is love. Mm. But how do you convince people? You know, there have been great preachers and prophets, you know, who over the aeons who have talked about the need to love one another. And it doesn't seem to have had, you know, a lasting effect. And Bob responded... Well, you know, given the greed and self-serving nature of the human character, the only way you'll ever get people to love one another is when you demonstrate that it's in their own greedy, self-serving interest to do so. (laughs) I thought that that was a very profound observation. Mm. And I think that brings us to the third point, which is what the lab started, and that is the pragmatics. You're dealing with something that has pragmatic implications. When you get down to the roots of any science, whether it be physics or biology or economics or psychology, ultimately you run into randomness. Mm. You know, at the very bottom, whether it's just DNA manifestation or whether it's the quantum level, of, we're dealing with randomness or chaos or whatever you want to call it. And what we do as humans is, our consciousness does, is to organize that. We are randomness organizers. Yes. And when we recognize that, we can come to realize that there are important implications of this and that it prevails across the whole spectrum of the scientific endeavor. And sooner or later, the scientific endeavor... We wrote a paper... I think there's a, it's reprinted in the source consciousness and the source book called Science of the Subjective. Mm. And it really described how what a new science would look like that accommodated consciousness as a proactive player in the game of reality. 
and how the science would have to start to accept and acknowledge the subjective aspects of the physical world as well as its objective components if they really want to understand it. If science is going to move further, it's going to have to come to grips with this subjectivity and with that, with consciousness and with that, with the spiritual connectedness of which we're all a part. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that gives me a chance to sort of <laughs> to sort of lay out some of my perceptions of what this all means. Well, that, that's a spectacular answer, and you'll probably be amused to find out uh, one of my prize judges, who's Dennis Noble from the University of Oxford. He actually has a commander of the British Empire medal from Queen Elizabeth. He figured out the cardiac rhythm which made pacemakers possible and he organized an evolution conference at the Royal Society in 2016 which advanced an alternative view of evolution. It was a very successful conference and he wrote a paper called Is the Watchmaker Blind or Is She One-Eyed? In other words, does the evolutionary process have foresight And one of the points that he makes, quite to something that you just mentioned about randomness, he said, organisms do not evolve stochastically or randomly. He said, organisms harness stochasticity. In other words, so here's an example. Your immune system generates all these antibodies, and the way that it does it, it's like a one-armed bandit, Uh, gambling machine you know where the apples and the bananas and the cherries are spinning Mm -hmm. except it holds it's like I'm looking for three cherries I'm going to hold these two cherries constant and keep pulling the arm and spin the third one until it comes up with what I want but it'll generate all kinds of antibodies based on holding most of the code fixed but changing one part of the code because it doesn't know what's going to work, but it knows what might work. Yeah. And that's precisely what he means by harnessing stochasticity, and that's essentially what all of us do. We do not control the crazy world around us, but we are always looking for something that comes our way that we can take advantage of, and this is it's the nature of life. It's the entropy reversal, uh, which uh, Schrodinger called negative entropy, and it's all bound up. So I was not aware of your paper, The Science of the Subjective, so I need to go take a look at that. But this has been fantastic. Yeah. I'm just really glad that I talked if, to you today. If I may, given what you were just describing, uh, put in a plug for one of our other ICRL Press books called Syntropy, The Spirit of Love. This was hmm. written by a couple of Italians who were building on the work of an Italian scientist called uh, Luigi Fontape. I'm probably mispronouncing it. But the proposal there is that there are two forces in the universe. There is the force of entropy that we are all familiar with, where things become more and more disordered until they become purely random. And that the force of entropy moves from the past to the future. But there is a complementary force called syntropy, Mm. that moves from the future to the past and it is an integrating anti or an anti-entropy, neg-entropy process that is based not on things breaking down but on things being drawn together and unifying. Yes. And I really love that book because I think their ideas are really right on the money. We don't think about syntropy but that's just what your colleague is talking about that there's something beside that works against the force of entropy that is an organizing principle and of course we're back to consciousness anyway preach it sister <laughs> that's amazing well Brenda this has been really good thank you for being here today well thank you Perry it's been a delight chatting with you Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. 
Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. <laughs>